Well, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is a pleasure to be with you this evening. I encourage you to look in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And our scripture text will come from Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. As you know, we are making our way back through a section of the book of Revelation, and we are listening to the Lord Jesus Christ as He writes His church letters. And these letters go to seven different churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor, and we said last week that these seven churches represent the entire church Catholic or the universal church, and each of these letters address a very, uh, very specific need in each of the congregations that receive the letters. One of the things that I wanted to convey last week, and I need to reiterate this week, is that as Jesus writes these letters and sends these letters to the churches, He reveals Himself to the churches again and again. And the way He reveals Himself to the churches is by reminding them of how He revealed Himself to John when John was on the island of Patmos. And so little pieces of the revelation of Jesus Christ show up in these letters again and again, indicating to us that every congregation of the church of Jesus Christ represents Jesus in some way, but there's not a single congregation anywhere that represents Jesus in every way. In order for us to see Jesus manifesting or revealing himself to the world through his church, it's going to take all of the churches of Jesus Christ coming together when you see the entire body of Christ the universal church that spread around the world, in that body of Christ, we see Jesus Christ most clearly. And so in some ways, this congregation represents Jesus. In other ways, we don't yet represent Jesus in all of the ways that we must or should. And so we're still growing in that. But what we want to do as we make our way through uh, Revelation 2 and 3 is we want to hear the letters receive the letters that Christ has revealed to His churches, and look for ways that we identify with these congregations, look for ways in which the words of Christ speak directly to us, and try to identify in some way with our brothers and sisters who received these letters from Jesus Christ way back in the day. Our scripture reading this evening is Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And keep in mind, these are the words of Jesus Christ. The Word of God reads, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated.
This is what was going on in Smyrna around the time that this letter, this revelation was sent out to the churches. There was a requirement for Christians to take part in the religious veneration of the emperor. They were expected to take a small pinch of incense and burn the incense on the altar of the imperial deity. All they had to acknowledge is that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is God and Lord. This was the pressure of their life. This was a matter of life and death in some cases. It was a matter of imprisonment or freedom in other cases. In the city of Smyrna, there was a temple to the emperor. It had been built previously, and generation after generation of people were expected to honor the emperor at that temple. It was the state church. When the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was established in Smyrna, you had a rival church set up to the state church. The Christians who gathered in the church at Smyrna were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They swore allegiance to Jesus Christ. In their hearts and minds, Jesus Christ alone is Lord, Lord and God. And so you can feel the tension in Smyrna. Feel the tension as you imagine what it was like to be a Christian in Smyrna. Day after day, you feel the struggle, and then you get a letter from Jesus Himself telling you that He knows about your struggle. He understands your tribulation, your poverty. He understands what's happening in the circumstance of your life, all because you have sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ. Imagine the temptation, the pressure, just to burn a little pinch of incense so you can get bread for your family, so you can keep your job, so you can shop in the marketplace. Just a pinch of incense. What is that going to do? Around the time the book of Revelation was written, Timothy George tells us that the emperor Domitian had his likeness stamped on a Roman coin with the words, Lord and God. Christians refused to declare him as Lord and God. And so you can imagine the difficulty of handling the money that had a false confession of faith written upon it. The church in Smyrna was revolutionary, but not in the sense of political revolutionaries. They weren't trying to overthrow the world just for the sake of overthrowing the world. They were trying to Christianize the world, their corner of the world, by preaching the gospel, by living out the faith of Jesus Christ in their corner of the world. And it came at a very high cost for them. It came at a very high cost for them. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But what I want you to see, as I mentioned last week, is how each of these letters, in each of these letters, Jesus writes the church and he has the same format. He considers the church in light of who he is. He commends the church for her works, her deeds, her labors. If necessary, he confronts the church. And then in light of that, he begins to counsel the church. And finally, he will comfort the church. 
And we can see him doing all of these things in this very brief letter that he writes to the church in Smyrna. He considers the church in light of who he, is, who he is in these words. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. It's very important that we understand that Jesus reveals himself to this suffering congregation of his people, not simply as the one who died, but also the one who lives again. He's revealing himself to, to them in this way to give them a sense of hopeful realism in the face of suffering and death. This is the kind of congregation that needs to be reminded that their Lord and Savior suffered and experienced many of the things that they are suffering and experiencing in their life. They need to know that they can identify with Jesus and He needs them to know that, they, that He identifies with them. He is fully aware of what they are experiencing and He knows by first-hand experience what it is like to suffer in this way. He is the first and the last. He is the bookends of their story. And in the midst of that story, there is death and there is life. And this, this church, this church in Smyrna, has been called to live in that rhythm of dying and rising with Christ. But it's much easier said than done. And so before Jesus gets too deep into this, He begins to commend them right away. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus understands the rhythm of this life. He experienced all of this himself. If you were to go back and read, for example, in the book of Philippians, you would see that Jesus had an attitude of humility. Although he is in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself a servant. He humbled himself. He went low down, made himself a man, and then a servant as a man. And then he humbled himself even more beyond that by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Jesus has already walked the path that the church in Smyrna is having to walk. And He is revealing to them once again that the path to exaltation must first go through humiliation. He is the suffering servant of the Lord who became the Savior. And so He experienced all of this in His life. He knows what it's like to be attacked and accused and arrested, arrested and abused by His own people by his own community, even by people who claim to be devout worshipers of God. He understands what they are going through. He understands what it's like to experience this kind of difficulty. It's interesting here that he refers to the attackers of the church in Smyrna as a synagogue of Satan. This is a way of talking about Jewish people who had rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They still had their synagogue. They still had their gathering. They were still trying to do things in the name of God and still reading the Bible every week, and yet they are attacking those who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' way of saying He has rejected that synagogue. 
that synagogue has nothing to do with God, but everything to do with Satan. Why? Because it is full of people who slander and blaspheme those who are following the Lamb into the new creation. Jesus knows by experience what suffering and poverty and slander look like and feel like. He has been through all of these things in his own life. When he made himself man and came into the world, he came into the world as a man but not as a prince. He came as a pauper. He came into a poor family and he grew up in poverty. He knows what it's like to be slandered and have people say things about you that are not true and not right, that are not accurate. He knows what it's like to be slandered and really the word here is blaspheme, to have people speak evil of you without cause. So he can relate to his people. He can understand what they're going through. There are many affinities between the, uh, the letter to Smyrna and the letter to the Philippians. And if you were to go back to Philippians 3, you would hear that not only are there Jewish people, a synagogue of Satan who are opposed to the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ, but there are in fact many enemies of the cross in the world. Paul says in Philippians 3, 18-21, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. I don't want it to be lost on you that when Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know the bad things you are experiencing, that Jesus is not allowing these things to happen willy-nilly. He's not surprised that they are happening. Remember, He is the sovereign Lord over the church. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So we have to step back and say, why are these things happening? We often sing in our congregation, whatever my God ordains is right. And it's easy to sing that when life is going well and you feel good and you're comfortable and there's no trouble in your life. But what if the, the heat is turned up? What if the pressure is bearing down? Can you still sing that with a clear conscience, with good faith? By experiencing the tribulation and the poverty that they are experiencing, the church at Smyrna is identifying with Christ, but also participating in the sufferings of Christ. We live in the West, we live in the Bible Belt, and this is the last thing on our to-do list, if it even makes it on the to-do list. We live in a time and place where any kind of discomfort, any kind of suffering is automatically perceived as a reason to go away, to go somewhere else. The church in Smyrna did not have the luxury of just bouncing off to the next comfortable safe haven. They receive a letter from Jesus encouraging them to be faithful no matter what, to be faithful all the way to the end. Not to be faithful until they get sick and tired of it. Not to be faithful until they just can't take it anymore. But to be faithful until the very end. 
The book of Philippians, for example, reminds us that we are united to Christ. And since we are united to Christ, that means that we must descend with Christ in sufferings, in hardships, in service. It also means that we must ascend with Christ in victory over these things, in life and in glory. We die and we rise with Christ. We serve and we reign with Christ. We do all of this in union with Christ. We are His body on the earth. Throughout Philippians, we hear things like this, that our purpose in life is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Our perspective in the world is Christ, that we must have the same mind, the same attitude, the same worldview as Christ. We learn that our prize or our pattern is Christ, that everything else amounts to a steamy pile. It's waste. It's rubbish. It's dung. But knowing Christ sharing in the sufferings of Christ, looking forward to glory with Christ, that is our purpose. That is our pattern of life. We also learn that Christ is our power. And that since He is our power, He is the secret of contentment. So that whether we live in a time of plenty and excess, or we live in a time of poverty and need, we can be content because... We are in Christ and with Christ and for Christ. We are united to Christ. So Jesus commends the church at Smyrna for these things, but notice he does not confront the church in this letter for anything. He doesn't pick at them. He doesn't expose any weakness or failure in them. They've suffered quite enough, haven't they? And so he moves on to counsel the church. How do you deal with this experience of suffering and struggling and tribulation and trial? How do you deal with that? First thing he says to them in verse 10 is, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. If you're like me, and if you had been in Smyrna, you read this and you think, I would much prefer Jesus to say, hey, trouble is coming, here's the way out of trouble. Hey, trouble is coming, and I see it, so I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen to you. He says, trouble's coming your way. Do not be afraid. It's going to last for a limited amount of time, 10 days, whatever that means. It's a limited time. You're going to be tested in that time. We're going to find out what you're made of, what you can deal with. Be faithful unto death, and then I'll give you the crown of life. In other words, he's calling the church to descend with him in the trial and tribulation of life, to descend with him to this low area of suffering and sacrifice. Come down with me into this, and then we will come out together on the other side. 
If they know anything about the gospel and the story of Jesus, then they would know that after humiliation comes exaltation. After Jesus was humiliated through his death on the cross, he was then exalted to the right hand of God. It was then that he was given the name that is above every name. It was then that the nations of the world were called and expected to bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. There is no exaltation without humiliation. And the church at Smyrna, identifying with Christ, must participate in the sufferings of Christ. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Suffering, many people will feel, is a bad thing. We live in a time where we've all been infected by the prosperity gospel in some way. We all believe that if life is going well and if things are safe and if we've got enough money in the bank and the AC is not broken and our cars are running okay and we still have a job next week, things are going smoothly, I'm healthy, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, God must love me, I must be doing something right because life is going so well for me. But the moment something breaks, the moment there's not enough money, the moment the health goes away, then we begin to wonder, well, where is God? I thought God loved me. I thought He was concerned about me. What happened? Why am I going through this? The church at Philippi learned this. In Philippians 1, 27-29, I encourage you to meditate on this. Paul exhorted the church, Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Jesus Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but that you should also suffer for His sake. Our sufferings in Christ are a gift of grace. Our sufferings in Christ are a gift of grace. Why? Because it's through our sufferings in Christ that we become more like Christ that we become conformed to His image. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. This is not a new thing, by the way. We could go back through the Old Testament and look at any number of examples of how the people of God were called to suffer in the world as they prepared the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. We heard in our scripture reading, just to give one example, we heard in our Old Testament scripture reading that some young Hebrew men were sent off into exile and found themselves in Babylon. And here they are trying to get enrolled in the University of Babylon and, and trying to get through all of those things, and they are tested for ten days. Turns out there's a hang-up over their diet and what they should or shouldn't eat. And so they challenge the system. They challenge the status quo. 
But they are put to the test in that moment. And if they fail the test, they are going to suffer. And those who allow them to go through this test are going to suffer. They go through the test for 10 days and God proves himself faithful to them in that test. So much so that they fare much better than even uh, the, others, the others who are trying to get into Babylon University, so to speak. And God grants these men, these young men who endured this test, He grants them all kinds of wisdom in literature and knowledge and the studies that they're about to undergo. He grants them insight and understanding that goes far beyond just their normal capacity. God's Spirit is with them. They're not the only ones who suffered in this way. Look at Job, for example, who was living the high life and things were going so well for him. And then day after day, a season in his life comes and he begins to lose everything. He loses possessions and property. He loses children. He loses family members. He loses friends. It all comes crashing down. And he begins his descent into suffering and sacrifice, wondering every day, every moment of the day, why is this happening to me? How long will this go on? And after a set period of time, inexplicably, he comes out the other side. He's lifted up. He's exalted and restored. What is he doing? He is foreshadowing the life of Jesus Christ. Descent into suffering, exaltation into glory. What is the church at Smyrna experiencing? The same kind of test that the prophets and the poets in the Old Testament experienced. Descent into suffering, exaltation into glory. And need I remind you that your story is very much like that. Our story is very much like that. I could take you back to just three summers ago, and that was when we began our descent into suffering, the tribulation and the poverty that came upon us in those days, the slander of people who spoke ill of us. We experienced similar things to the church at Smyrna. It's too bad that some of us didn't know the words of Jesus in those days. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And yet you are rich. Why would Jesus say that? Every month our deacons send us a report on our, on our treasury, on our account to see how things are going. And every time I see that, part of me breathes a sigh of relief and part of me scratches my head and says, how in the world is the Lord taking care of us, right? Now, this is not an intro into a fundraising sermon. I'm not trying to backdoor anything here. I'm simply saying that we are candidates to receive the same kind of letter that the church at Smyrna received. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And yet you are rich. And you know what makes us rich? It's not the number of people we have. And it's not the amount of money we have in the bank. It's not even the comfy lives we live or even being in this very pleasant building. What makes us rich is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at work in us. That's what makes us rich. What makes us rich is the Spirit of Christ at work in us and the love of God in our hearts that keep us knit together and knit to Christ. That's what makes us rich. 
There are churches that I've visited in recent days, recent weeks, that have much nicer facilities, their own permanent facilities. They have a lot of nice things in place, but they don't have what we have. They're poor. They're rich in some ways, poor in the ways that matter. And I wouldn't trade for the world. Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, I know you're poor, I know your poverty, and yet you are rich. It's so easy to become self-conscious when you know just how poor you are, when you know what you're lacking, what your needs are. But we need to be reminded, we need to remember that we have Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ, and we have one another, and we have the Gospel. And that's what makes us rich. All of our needs are met in those things. We're called here to be faithful unto death. In the first century, faithful unto death would have meant exactly what it sounds like. It would have been a literal expression. You need to be faithful until you become a martyr. That's what it would have meant for them. And you know as well as I do, as we look around the world in the Middle East, if you look in Egypt, you look at some places in Asia, uh, you look around the world and you know that some of our brothers and sisters need to hear this, be faithful unto death and you'll get the crown of life. And they experience that in a literal way as they struggle to be faithful even to the point of dying for Christ. And I don't want to take anything away from those martyrs. We met many of them in our uh, survey of Revelation. Many martyrs who lost their lives and lost their heads for their faith in Christ. And I'm not taking anything away from that. But let me suggest to you that there's more than one way to die. There's more than one way to die. And as I try to think of ways to apply this to our situation so that it becomes real, I want to encourage you with these same words. Be faithful unto death. I don't know when death will come for you. I don't know when death will come for us, if it ever will. But we need to be faithful no matter what. They say that 80% of all church plants fail. We have church planter friends who go out and they want to plant churches in North America. 80% of those churches fail. That's a kind of death. People go into ministry. They spend many years in ministry and sometimes they live long enough to see the death of a ministry. Congregations form. They have dreams of doing great things for the Lord. They want to accomplish things. They want people to come to faith in Christ. They want to see the gospel go out into their community and grab people and bring them in. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. I had breakfast with a pastor a few days ago who told me that his church is literally dying. He said to me, we have no young people, we have no children in our church. And he's watching people literally die in his church. Faithful, Jesus-loving, God-fearing people. And he's watching his church die. And I said, what will you do? What, what are you going to do? He said, we're going to be faithful unto death. There's more than one way to die. We're all going to die, but we need to die well. I mentioned last week that it's possible that even a congregation like ours, as, as much as we have going for us, it's possible that at some point our candlestick could be removed. It's possible that we could die. 
We don't know if or when that day will come, but what matters in the meantime is that we pursue faithfulness. That's what we are called to do. And this is the hardest thing for anyone to do. It's hard for a pastor to pursue faithfulness instead of fruitfulness because we live in a world where success is measured by what? The number of people in the seats, the number of noses you can count, the number of baptisms, the number of conversions. It's hard for people in a congregation to measure success the way Christ does because we've been so impacted and influenced by our culture. But you see here that Jesus measures it by faithfulness, not even by your fruitfulness. Be faithful unto death and you will get the crown of life. Isn't that beautiful? So it's not, it's not about how many people can you win for Christ? How much can you give in your tithe? How many times can you show up for church? It's not about that. Can you be faithful unto death? Will you be faithful unto death however long the Lord gives you to live? Faithfulness is where it's at. That is what pleases the Lord. That is what causes the Lord to respond to His people. So if you look in the Gospels, the only time Jesus ever spoke highly of people is when they were faithful. But He never speaks highly of anyone who is unfaithful. And so we must be faithful unto death whenever that comes. The crown of life is given to those who, who win. We want to win. We, we don't want to just compete. We certainly don't want to compete and then stop competing. We want to finish the race that we've started. The crown of life is given to those who finish, not to those who quit. Well, Jesus comforts His church in this way. By reminding us of the words of the Holy Spirit. Remember he said that the Spirit would be given to comfort his people, to guide us into all truth, to, uh, to lead us into a true and better knowledge of who Jesus is. And the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Too many people worry about the first death, the first death that comes to us all. The death that is the result of Adam's sin and our sin, but it's the second death you want to worry about. And those who are faithful unto death will not be hurt at all by the second death. Remember we heard about the second death late, late in the book of Revelation where we learned that it is the lake of fire. It is the place of judgment. That is where the devil and his beasts and all of his cohort will be tossed at the end. It is a place of judgment. It's where the bad folks go when they die. But those who conquer, those who overcome their fear of death, those who conquer and overcome their their success-driven life and pursue faithfulness, those are the people who will not be hurt at all by the second death. What you heard throughout this sermon is I, I mentioned Smyrna and what was happening in Smyrna with the Roman Empire, and then I started to weave in some things from Philippi, and maybe you were going, why were we talking about Philippi so much? Well, here's why. There's a well-known story of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was influenced by the writings of the Apostle Paul. He was actually a disciple of the Apostle John and knew the Apostle John and grew up in an area where John was pastor of the churches. Polycarp lived to be 86 years old. 
He was from Smyrna. Timothy George points out in this beautiful article about Polycarp, he says this, that in Polycarp's day, there was an easy way out of the, 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 uh, the dilemma of worshiping the emperor. He points out that there's always an easy way out, right? Everyone has a price for which he will sell his soul, if not money or pleasure, then for titles or women, brick and mortar. There is always something. Everyone has a price. That's what the emperors are counting on. That's what the world is counting on. But they weren't counting on someone like Polycarp showing up. Polycarp was 86 years old on Sunday, February 23rd in the year 155. So just a few years after the book of Revelation was sent out to the churches. The proconsul offers him a way out. Take a pinch of incense, place it on the altar of the imperial deity, a simple gesture, symbolic, that's all. Then you can go on worshiping Jesus all you like, and we will check you off our list. Polycarp would have nothing to do with that. He's heard the letter from Jesus to the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death. It's game day in Smyrna. It's a holiday. 20,000 bloodthirsty fans of torture and violence have turned out to see the shows. Smyrna was the epicenter of Roman spectacles. There was a school for training gladiators at Pergamon, just north of the city. The program of the day goes like this. In the morning, wild animals are set loose in the arena and they are systematically hunted down and killed. Later that day, the gladiators would fight, but in the afternoon, with the sun high in the sky, it was time for the execution of criminals. They were the slaves, the war captives, arsonists, murderers, and those like Polycarp, who had committed sacrilege by refusing to honor the godhead of Caesar who refused to take the easy way out. So the story goes, the proconsul says to Polycarp, take the oath and I will let you go. Revile Christ. And Polycarp says, for 86 years, I have been his servant. And he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? And Polycarp offers a prayer in the name of the triune God, and then he is bound. And the sticks under his feet are lit. And like Jesus, who was crucified naked, Polycarp enters the flames without his clothes. And when the people saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, the executioner was ordered to stab him with a dagger. And so the ground of Smyrna was made holy by the blood of a martyr. Those who conquer will not be hurt at all by the second death by the lake of fire. So you older men, you think you've done it long enough? You haven't done it long enough till you die. 
and don't ever give up. And you younger people who think you're never going to make it that long, don't give up. You got to keep going. You got to be faithful to death.